I love you, Lord. I don't know, there's something beautiful about the way that song is written how it, and how we sing it. It just resonates with praise, genuine, heartfelt praise and thanksgiving to God. I love you, Lord. That's where my heart is this morning, wanting to speak about thanksgiving and praise today because we're together again, and that matters. That matters a whole bunch. Um, I have to admit, my heart has not always been a heart of thanksgiving. Can you relate to that? Have you ever had grumbling in your heart? Um, I have. Uh, The ministry here um, is a blessing to me, one of the greatest blessings of my life. But through the years, those that know, particularly the earlier years, um, it's hard. There were a lot of things stacked against us. We didn't have financial backing. We didn't have another church behind us. We realized that a Bible-preaching church in an area like this is not all that welcomed. A lot of us working in trying to establish the church didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't have experience in church planting. And then um, you just have all of that stacked against you, the costs of living in the area, the difficulty of obtaining a building and how that delays the ability to hire the staff that you need to care for your people. And then that means that people that come don't get cared for and they leave disgruntled and you get blamed even though you feel like you're working, you know, your tail off to be able to meet needs. It's never quite enough. And so my heart grumbled. My heart grumbled against the Lord, um, grumbled about the persistent difficulty of ministry. We were told, of course, ministry is hard, but you don't really know it until you're in it. And then you have to deal with your own bad attitudes, you know, and you're growing a family in the midst of all of that, trying to be a good dad and husband in the midst of all of that. And it's it's certainly not easy. My heart has, has grumbled um, far more than it should have. Um, but now that we're experiencing these extra trials that we're experiencing, it's interesting how God has done a work in my heart that's not grumbling as much. I'm facing, and Susan is facing, the hardest trial of our lives with, with the cancer and all the effects of cancer. We feel that daily. It's a daily weakness. It's daily caring for the body and daily feeling like there's just more you want to do and just can't do. There's the pain. Uh, there's the humbling of all of it. And it's just, uh, it's really hard. In some ways, this one trial is more than all my other trials combined. And when you have one stacked on top of the other, and you might be feeling a little bit like this, you wonder, what's the Lord doing? But in my heart, God has been producing more and more thanksgiving. And I know that is, uh, as a testimony to His grace, it is Him working, operating, and changing what I would normally resort to, to a heart of thanksgiving. And then, as if all of that was not enough, the Lord decided that He would send us a virus to stack on top of that. And at a time where we most needed uh, your hugs and your encouragement, just as you feel you need from others, uh, we were distanced. And so that makes the, uh, the trial even that much harder. And then you start reading the news and you feel like maybe our country is coming apart at the seams and what is happening here, you know, and you wonder, are people going to really do it? Colossians 3 talks about where love is the 
is the cords of unity that bind us together or whether or not our love will prove insincere and we'll judge one another and just kind of dissipate apart. All of this is difficulty. We're going through very difficult times. We're going through unique times. And um, we need to have a perspective of thanksgiving and praise towards God that he is a Lord who is in charge, who knows what he's doing, who has the same attributes he always has. And so that's why as we regather now, um, Pastor Gabe said three months and um, 13 weeks, three months. Um, That's how long it's been since we've regathered and many still are not able to regather with us, but we're beginning that process. I just wanted to direct our attention back to thanksgiving and back to praise. And um, I chose Psalm 146 for us to meditate on. It's actually a psalm I preached 12 years ago, um, but it was such a delight for me to meditate on at that time and has proven to be a benefit to me now. If you want to open up to Psalm 146, we'll cover the whole psalm. But just as you do that, I'll read Psalm 106 that declares, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And then what we just read in our scripture reading, Psalm 111, at the beginning, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. That's what we are to do privately. That's what we do when we gather together again. We're in the company of the upright. And here it's very appropriate for us to be booming forth our thanksgiving and our praise to God. So I am so grateful for this day and only hope that we'll never take for granted again our gatherings You know, a little taste of what folks in lands where they're fearful to gather, a little taste of what they experience, even though it's not the same, um, that we would put away our grumbling for whatever small trials we're going through and realize that we have a great God and worship Him. So if we listen to the Psalms and we listen to the Scriptures, what we will hear is life from God's perspective. And if we do hear that, rather than resulting in anger and discontentment and all the other emotions that might come out, God will direct our thoughts towards a Lord who sits on his throne. Nothing has changed. All things are operating exactly the way he has planned. They're leading towards a glorious future for you and for me. That's where our faith has to go. That's where our thoughts have to go. That's where my thanksgiving and your thanksgiving need to be directed. So let me read this, Psalm 146, 1 to 10. And it says, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord while I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. 
The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. And then it ends with those words. Would you say them with me? Praise the Lord. And I could hear you through your masks, so that's great. Psalm 146 is the first of the last five psalms of the Psalter. They are each called Hallelujah Psalms. In fact, double Hallelujah Psalms, because the last five psalms all begin and end with, you guessed it, praise the Lord. The main theme of the entire book of the psalms is worship. But these last five psalms form the joyous pinnacle of all of that worship. John Phillips in his commentary captures the mood of these last psalms. Quote, Here the organ booms, cymbals clang, trumpets sound, the people sing, waves of sound roll toward the throne of God. That's how we ought to view it, that what we're saying, that we can't see God on his throne, all of this just rolls towards him. Here, unlike earlier psalms, which expressed many other concerns, David would cry out for his life, for example. The focus of praise is what's dominant. The spotlight is entirely on God. What does God do that that provokes my thanksgiving? What is God doing that elicits my praise? It's not on my sorrows in this psalm. The focus is not on our anxieties in this psalm, just on God. This psalm consists of only 10 verses, but I think it's stuffed full of reasons to praise the Lord. We won't be able to deal with all of them to the fullest today, but we'll try to do some. The human author of the psalm is not actually known. Some believe it was written around the time of the completion of the second temple. That would be around 515 BC, you know, 400 and some years beyond the life of David. The Septuagint attributes the authorship of this and the next psalm to Haggai and Zechariah. If that is true and we don't know, then they would have sung this as the new temple was being dedicated to the Lord their God. What is certain is the theme and the purpose. It is to inspire us to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, for all that he has done. Now, this inspiration comes in four portions. So we're going to go through these four portions now with you. Again, if you like taking notes, that's our outline. First portion is the commitment to praise the Lord. That's in verses 1 and 2. There's a basic commitment here to praise the Lord in verses 1 and 2. We sense sort of a growing intensity as each new line is read. It gets a little stronger with uh, each line. Um, in the, first, the very first line, we hear the basic commitment of the psalmist. Praise the Lord. There it is. You know, that's a phrase that we often use, right? Praise the Lord. Sometimes people in the world make fun of that. You ever seen people go, oh, yeah, praise the Lord? And that's usually not someone that has any faith and trust in God. That phrase ought to be precious to us. Would you agree? You know, we, that, that means something to us. Praise his name. Lift his name up high. In Hebrew, it's one word, hallelujah which is a compound word from Hallel, to praise, and Yah, which is a shortened form of Jehovah or Yahweh. Thus, praise the specific God named Yahweh. 
The name comes from God's declaration to Moses on Sinai, I am who I am, thus the one who is, the the one who is eternally self-existent. This is the God to whom the Israelites bound themselves in covenant. We call it the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. It's a common word that was used in multiple worship situations, hallelujah. You would praise God for who he is, such as in Psalm 106 and verse 1, praise the Lord, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. So praise was for God's attribute for who he was, that he was good. You could praise God for what he does, which is just merely an extension of who he is, such as in Psalm 113 and verse 9, God makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So you praise him for what he does. Here God is praised for the good that God does for Israel. You have a whole litany of things God did for Israel, and God is praised for that. Now, I said that there's a growing intensity. You look at the second line of the verse, and it intensifies the praise. It says, praise the Lord, and it adds, O my soul. So um, Steve Lawson calls this an exuberant, boisterous shout to God. Uh, I like to call it a sermon to oneself, where you, you preach, but you kind of let it boomerang a little, and it comes back to yourself, and you're preaching to your own soul, and that's kind of what he was doing. You know, I see myself getting depressed I see myself kind of losing sight of what's really going on in the world the way God sees it. And so I tell my soul, come on now, praise the Lord, oh my soul. And it intensifies us. Others may at times remind us, you know, you need to lift up God's name, but there are times where we need to remind our own souls and take responsibility for that. It's an emotional statement. It's a passionate statement. If you capture this commitment that's being voiced, it's capturing the same spirit that Jesus said, when you worship God, you need to worship him in spirit and truth, not just truth. Remember what the law commanded, the greatest command in all of the law of God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest, not loving one another. That's the second greatest. The greatest is God, love him, have passion towards him, obey him, be loyal to him. And so that's what this psalm is really bringing out. The soul is embracing that commandment. The third line goes higher still in verse 2. It takes this commitment and kind of ratches it up one notch. I will praise the Lord while I live. Wow. So in other words, throughout the whole duration of my life, I'm not going to stop this commitment. It's going to keep happening to me. If you're 15 years old, great. Praise the Lord. If you're 35, 55, you should still be continuing that as a believer, right? Still what should be coming from your mouth, praise the Lord. If you're 85, 95, all the way to the end. If we have seen dear saints of God near the end of their life who are older, and some not always when they're older, and we see them still praising God, man, that matters to me. You see them taking it all the way to the end. Their faith endured to the end. I like that. I like that because I need to see that, you know. This is not a a passing phase. Oh, I'm kind of in the mood to praise the Lord. You know, I'm going to be zealous for the Lord now. No, this is a commitment all the way to the end of life. And then I think the fourth line takes it to the highest heights. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. As long as I'm me, this being, let me kind of amplify it a little bit, this small little guy, this lesser creature in the universe, (laughs) as long as I'm here, I'm going to praise that greater being in the universe. He's great. 
He is the one who establishes all of life and all of existence. Who am I? I'm nothing. But I'll tell you this, my commitment is from this piece of clay coming out of my mouth while I have breath, coming from my lungs while I can still use them, you're going to hear praise of God to me. It's kind of like Psalm 104, verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. I love it. And by the way, adding instruments of song is in that. He talks about singing to the Lord to to heighten the praise. In fact, when you get into Psalm 149 and Psalm 150, it starts even listing all the musical instruments that would be added in Israeli worship to say, let's use all the instruments we have, even the loud and exuberant ones, to join that chorus and to help us raise the level and praise him more. Please notice there's no grumbling about life in this psalm. I'm sure... The folks back then had trials also. If this was around the second temple time, it was kind of a time of poverty. There are always reasons to grumble if we feel we deserve better. Would you agree? And there are always something that's going wrong either in your life or in society, government, your job. Somewhere there's something to grumble about, but not, not when we focus on the Lord, not when we, we look at who he is and what he's doing. Man, all of that justification for my grumbling, you know, kind of crumbles. And it's, it's wonderful having a believing family with me and having a believing wife because if I get the grumbling going too much, you know who's going to remind me of all the goodness of God, right? Is <laughs> that person I'm living with. And so that's how it should be in the company of the upright. We, we sympathize. What you're going through is tough. I'm there for you. I'd like to help, but... Don't let it carry you away. Let's, let's get that heart of thanksgiving going again, right? There are no accusations against God in this psalm. There is unmixed devotion and focus and worship. Steve Lawson has commentaries on the psalms. I'd really encourage you to get them. They have wonderful insights. Here's a quote from him on this psalm. One of the most accurate measures of where any believer is spiritually is the intensity of his praise to God. Wherever there is advancement in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be an ever-increasing sacrifice of praise ascending from his heart to the Lord. A soul enraptured with God will be evidenced by a mouth exalting him. What he's saying is if you're really growing closer to the Lord, you want to know how to measure that? Listen to what's coming out of your mouth in terms of praise and thanksgiving. All right, that was the first portion. Now we go to the second portion. And that is the caution against praising man. And you might not think of this at first. You might think, well, what's that doing in this psalm? How does that relate to praising the Lord? But he's actually making uh, the, the praise and the trust in human beings opposite of our praising God. That's in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 where he says, Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation, his spirit departs, he returns to the earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. Well, I think that there is much misplaced trust in the world today, maybe even in your hearts. In this psalm, it is expressed as trust in princes, which really refers to the noble people of the world, the men of great power, the men of great riches and influence. 
God knows that we are fallen human beings, and often we trust in the wrong things. We trust in people that he knows will ultimately fail us. So God commands us, don't trust in men. You cannot be a person who excels in praising the Lord and also at the same time be someone who trusts in man because they go in two different directions. When you trust in man, you don't, you don't feel the need to be constantly focused on the Lord and praising him, you see? When you praise the Lord, you don't have a need to trust in man because you see him for who he is. Years ago, before he died, James Montgomery Boyce wrote about this. Isn't the main reason we fail to worship God the fact that we value human beings more than we value God? Theoretically, we know that God is of supreme importance, but he is invisible to us and usually also remote from our thoughts. What we do see is other human beings, particularly those who seem important. So we focus on people and put our trust in them. We trust politicians, thinking that the president or Congress or mayor or some other highly placed person will be able to solve our problems, but they can't even solve, and solve their own. We trust science or education or anything else to be our ultimate savior. We do not actually trust God and worship him. Spurgeon adds this, men are always far too apt to depend upon the great ones of earth and forget the great one above. I would remind you that faith is of no value if it is placed on the wrong object. We are not people of faith. We are people of faith in Jesus, and there is a huge difference. If you trust in the stock market, you can be burned. If you trust in your company, yeah, they may lay you off. If you trust in your doctor, he is no miracle worker. Trust me, I know. If you trust in your government, whether it's national or state, they're sinful people too. They often make things worse. One day, Satan will be very pleased to provide a man for this entire world to trust in. He will empower this man so that man can trust in man, that is, Satan's man, the Antichrist, who will rise quickly to world popularity and stature. He will solve economic problems, civil problems, foreign policy problems. Man, he will be good. He will be smooth. He will be skilled. And people will praise him. And they'll think, here we go, here we go. We're finally getting all the nations together. We're starting to solve problems. Satan will be all too happy to provide a man like that to trust in. If you're going to praise the Lord throughout all of your life, you're going to have to view your fellow man lower. They'll have to diminish in greatness in your eyes. Those that are caught up with the greatness of their fellow man will not gaze at the infinitely greater glory and power of the Lord that we worship. This warning then is a direct renunciation of humanism and even liberal ideology. The Christian cannot think as a humanist. Why? Because the humanist regards man as great, not God. The Christian cannot think as the liberal. Why? Because the liberal fancies man as basically good at heart. Those two worldviews are opposed to the Bible. The scripture regularly teaches that humanity is neither great nor good. The wise human being is a worshiper of the one who is great and good, and he is the Lord. Man is not great, 
Man is not good. Not even man's idols are great or good. God is great and good. If you are a seeker of truth, you will be enamored with the divine, not with the human. I want to give a trivia question to you. Maybe some of you like trivia questions about your Bible. What is the middle verse in all of the Bible? And what does it say? It's actually Psalm 118, verse 8. Do you know what it says? This is kind of interesting. It says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Kind of sounds like the message of all of the Bible. In fact, verse 9 adds, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, the greatest men. I think that's the central message of the Bible. Trust in the Lord. Believe in God. Don't believe in people. They can't save you. They can't benefit you. Really, if you don't get that message, you can't understand the Christian faith. These last few months, there is this sweeping resurgence of all things political. Did you know that that last sentence that I said is actually a quote from my sermon on this very psalm 12 years ago, back in the year 2008. <laughs> I wanted to read it to you word for word so you would understand things just don't change. 2008 was a highly charged political year, just as 2020. Very interestingly, I also said these words back in 2008. I'll quote myself. But beloved, you must know there is no deliverance in newly elected officials. You will not find your problem solved by either the Republican or Democratic Party. They will both fail us as believers. And the president, no matter who he is, cannot really do that much. He is not that powerful. He's not even a prince. He is no king. He does not reign. He cannot even pass laws or rule as a judge. And he only gets four years, end quote. I'm not a prophet, but when you follow scripture, it tells you the way life really is. Notice how the greatest men among us are described as mortal men. Why is it that even Christians have this unnecessary devotion to so-called great people in our world? And I don't mean just politicians. I mean sports figures, singers, movie stars, famous CEOs, acclaimed authors. We want their autograph. We want to get a picture with them. We are curious what their viewpoint is. Why? Why is it that we claim to praise the Lord and trust in the Lord, but man, what they say is so important to us? Listen, they come and they go. They win and then they lose and they disappear with time. Most of them understand less about life than you do. You understand more about reality than they do. Why? Because your mind has been renewed by the scriptures. But sometimes you even glory in them and you think they are the ones to listen to. You've got to understand one day they will turn into dust just like you. They're no different than us. Notice what comes next. In whom there is no salvation, the psalm says. The word for salvation can mean physical deliverance or spiritual. Princes would often deliver their people from physical harm, but then they would turn around and there'd be a greater king who would defeat them in battle. Ultimately, it is God alone who determines who wins and who loses. In terms of spiritual deliverance, there is no spiritual deliverance with human government. Government cannot save you. And no government can prepare you for the judgment of God. 
Remember what man is in verse 4. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. That describes human death. Man is a two-part being, we learn from Genesis 2. His body returns to the ground, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 says, and his spirit leaves the body and flies off to be with God, to face God's judgment. Or if we as believers, to be in the very presence of Christ. Our bodies originated from the ground, that's all we are. We're nothing more, they're nothing more either. I have watched my own body, how cancer reduces it so quickly to really nothing. And I look at people that have very strong bodies and their opinions of themselves then are very self-confident. But God can just touch them and they would disintegrate. They would begin to fall apart. Their bodies could get a disease at any time and uh, be lessened and even die. And we need to remember that's all we are. Don't stare at your fellow man's strength, his money, his muscles. He will grow old. He will die. He'll be suddenly cut off if he doesn't grow old. His thoughts will perish in that very day. Again, Spurgeon says, men's ambitions and expectations and declarations and boastings all vanish into thin air when the breath of life vanishes from their bodies. Remember, that's who they are. Yes, we live in hard and and confusing times. Many people are doing wrong in the sight of God and declaring it as right. Don't listen to them. Stay focused on what God says in his word. It's not that hard to interpret. Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. The world is not the light that you would follow. They are to learn from us, not the other way around. Don't let them lecture you about morals when you know from God what he has commanded. Remember 1 Timothy 3, 15, the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. Learn the scriptures well. Have the mind of Christ. And then with a humble and patient heart, be a teacher of others. And don't let anyone silence your voice or try to intimidate you because God has revealed truth to you. The third portion of this praise of God and thanksgiving of God is really the largest section. That's verses 5 through 10, or part of verse 10 there. And that is the confidence in praising the Lord. We have this confidence in praising the Lord because of all that we see God doing. It says, how blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord is God. Don't be like those who trust in man. You are far more blessed if you are the one that trusts in the God of Jacob. God, in verse 5, is the term El, the mighty one. He's powerful. He's strong. Put your trust in him. Here, the concept of, of trust is extended to that of hope. With hope, you wait confidently for the Lord, and you watch what he does for the righteous ones. You do not wait for the next election. You do not wait for the results of Wall Street. You do not wait for man. You hope in the Lord. Why? Verse 6, he's the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. If we made a little comparison, which the psalm invites us to do, we'd say, what is man? Oh, he lives for a while and then he perishes. He returns to the ground. Who's the Lord? He's the one that made everything. Compare the two. See what they're able to do. See their capabilities. Now, isn't it just wise and smart to put your trust in God? All this that we see is the work of his hand. You know, go to the ocean. Look out over the ocean um, at the beach sometime and think about all that he's created, all the creatures that are in there. Go to the mountains this summer and, and, and feel the power of the hills that are underneath your feet. Look up at the stars at night. See all that God has made. 
and let that be your instruction. That's who God is. That's why we put our trust in him, not in man. What wisdom and power there is with God. There are no weaknesses with God. John Phillips writes, Imagine the folly of trusting in some puny man when we are invited to trust such a God as this. We have a God who can orbit galaxies, a God who can make or move mountains with equal ease, a God who can swirl seas in the basin as though they were a few pints of water in a pail. We have a God who can do the impossible, a God who can make galactic empires out of nothing. That's our God. What else is God like? He keeps faith forever, the scripture says. This middle and large section of the psalm really reminds us that God cares for us. With all of his power, he's busy taking care of us. God is there. He looks after our needs. Human leaders don't do that. They don't keep faith forever. They promise something, do a little something to amaze us, and then, and then they're not faithful anymore. But God's faithful. He keeps his word. He keeps his solemn covenant. Look at verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed. The oppressed back then were any that were taken advantage of by the rich. Well, nothing has changed, right? Those with money and those in power typically do not look after minorities and do not look after those that are in a weaker situation. God will bring about justice for them, for those who've suffered under the hand of injustice. He does that. Believe that. Put your trust in him. The Lord will take up your cause. The Lord will execute justice on your behalf. So take your case to him. He is no respecter of persons. Remember, Jesus himself experienced injustice. And when he experienced injustice, that was a trial, a trial where he was falsely accused and he was whipped and beaten and Pilate even said he was innocent and then he was crucified. And it says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that he set an example for us. So what do we do when we're suffering unjustly? We have an example. Jesus Christ, what did he do? It says in 1 Peter 2, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. Not man, God. God has a throne room. He has a judgment seat. He will judge all people. He'll make things right. Jesus just kept entrusting himself to that. So what did God do with Jesus after men killed him? Answer, raised him from the dead. And that's not all. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Amen? Exalted high. Why? Because he was innocent. It was impossible for death to keep him down. God takes up the cause in his time. And we have to put trust in him. God also gives food to the hungry. The Lord sees the needy. He provides food, usually through, in our case, our having a job and being able to pay our bills. But if we lost our job and we started to have a famine over the land, God would remember the righteous. God would remember those that trust in him. And God would show his creative ways of providing food for you. If you've ever been in a real difficult financial situation before and prayed, you know that it is times like that that you sense God is near. And he provides in uncommon ways. This is what he does. Is your job in jeopardy? Is your salary being threatened? You have a God. You have a strong God. He'll look after you. Now, five times there is this emphatic position of the name of the God of Jacob, the Lord. And it kind of goes what he does, all this confidence we have in God, all these reasons. The Lord sets the prisoner free. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Verse 9, the Lord protects the stranger. Every area of need, the Lord is there. The Lord is there looking after you, providing for you. Why? Because you trust in him. 
because you praise him, because you give thanks to him. This little psalm here reminds us of how Jesus even described his own ministry when he came in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Sounds a little like Hannah's song also in 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 4. The the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. What's the point of all of that? If you are a righteous person that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've put your trust in the God of Jacob. God will provide for you. Uh, You may be in this kind of need or in that kind of need. God will see. God will take up your case. God will provide. But for the others, no. He's not there to defend them. He may provide for them. He sends his sun to shine on the righteous and on the unrighteous. He sends his rain upon the same. But he doesn't have to. But with us, he's promised to. For we are his righteous ones because of the righteousness of Christ. I know that life has a way of knocking us to the ground, knocking us around. Sometimes it just seems very, very hard. There are difficulties in life. We have no control over them. We didn't ask for them, but we got them. Sometimes it's just really difficult people that you have to deal with in life, and they're such a source of anguish for you. There are unexpected bills that seem to just keep, you know, knocking down your plans to try to get your head above water. There are ailments that don't go away. And you plead, the Lord, please heal, but he is pleased to continue to press that on you and to work his grace in you. There are clearly disappointments. There are injustices. There is prejudice. There are people who treat others poorly. And that's not just in America, by the way. You look up prejudice and um, persecution. You can look up just about any country in the world and find the source of that, often worse than our country, often with extreme violence going on at a much greater level. Why? Because we're all part of Adam's race. We're all fallen. Allow this group to be in power. It's the same heart. That group's not in power and this group is in power, it's going to be the same heart and they're going to do the same things. That's just the way the human heart is. God knows that and that's why he doesn't have any plan for this world except to consume it with fire. That's God's future for this world. He's going to burn it up with fire. He's not going to fix it. He's not going to massage it. He's not going to reform it. He's going to destroy it. That's what he said over and over again. What does that mean? He's rejected it. So what are we? We're being saved out of that world. (laughs) We're being delivered out of that to be a distinct society where God is working in us because we now have the law of God in our heart and we are to model inside the church what can never be outside of the church. We are the example God uses to show other people this is how to live. And is that because we're special? Oh, no. It's because God is done a special work of grace on our hearts. Just remember as you suffer that God is dedicated to those who keep his law and his will. He loves the righteous. He saves us so we would be obedient children and holy in behavior. God takes care of vulnerable believers as they call upon him. 
even such as the foreigner. This is not talking about those that are illegally entering into a country. This is talking about those that would be taken advantage of because they don't really have roots in a particular country and someone else sees that they don't and take advantage of them in some way. It might be legally, it might be economically. God guards and protects them. He supports the fatherless and the widow, orphans and widows, two of the most needy in that society. Those that didn't have parents to provide or a husband to go through life with, easy targets for those that want to steal something. Um, the church in 1 Timothy 5 is commanded to take care of older widows that have served the church. And that's something we have to do. Families, of course, have the first line of responsibility to take care of widows. But as we have widows at Hope Bible Church, it is our responsibility to make sure they never, they never are kicked out of their homes, that their needs are met. That's the church's responsibility, and we need to take care of them. Um, sometimes... Uh, we don't have necessarily orphans here, but we might, but some family comes that's particularly needy. The rest of us need to stand up and help out in any way that we can. God thwarts the way of the wicked. In other words, the, the wicked have a way and a pathway that they want to do, and God turns it upside down because he wants it to be right. Um, God subverts their way because their way is perverted. Well, we do live in a world where liars call those of us who speak the truth deceivers. And God's going to take this upside-down world and he's going to turn it aright when his son returns. We are premillennialists. That means we believe the Lord Jesus still is coming, literally, to earth. He will arrive. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And when he does, he will begin his thousand-year reign on earth. And that society will have righteousness from sea to shining sea. Before that, it just won't be achieved. Some societies have more Christian influence on it but the less Christian influence on it, the more that society becomes violent and moves away from justice and moves away from kindness. But God will take this upside-down world and turn it back upright again. That's why I praise Him. That's why I trust in Him. I trust in His plans and His future. Well, the, the last portion, the fourth portion, I'm going to call the coronation of praise to the Lord, and that's in uh, verse 10. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. That's really the climax of the song. The Lord will reign forever. Well, in the last few verses, in a series of acts for the oppressed, we see that God is in control. He's still sovereign. He's over man. He reigns. This last part says... And his reign won't end. It'll be on and on forever, unto the ages. He controls the decisions of all kings, all governments. He controls man's will and the decisions of men. They're all part of his predestined plan. Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 135, 5, For I know that the Lord is great and that our God is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. And then in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Wherever there are established authorities, we want to get angry at them, but God 
is the authority over all. And even when they make wrong decisions, he moves it all towards his plan, which is good. He is in control. This final praise the Lord is like the king's crown. I call it the coronation of praise for the Lord. The final crown of the psalm is placed on the head of God, so to say. And we say, praise the Lord, he reigns forever and ever. And that he is our God, not someone else's. He is the one who created all things. He is the one who helps the needy. He is the one who reigns now. He is the one my soul is going to be busy praising and trusting as I go forward. He's going to reign forever. I want to be part of his kingdom. And so, what do I say? (laughs) What's my response? What's my application? There's not really something to do here. It's something to believe. If there is something to do, it's to say this. Hallelujah. 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 Praise praise the Lord. He's my God. I'm going to trust in him. I don't need anybody else if I'm thinking rightly. I don't trust in any man to fix anything. I'm going to do what God says. I'm going to close with a challenge again from Steve Lawson's commentary, some words for you. Think about this as we close. Praising God is a choice, he writes. It is an intentional choice of the will to magnify God in every circumstance and situation of life. Sometimes our trials momentarily obscure our view of God and threaten to steal away the praise that belongs exclusively to God. Whenever the tribulations of life mount, we must maintain our God-centered focus and choose God-enthralled praise of the Lord. Amen and amen. I think we're going to sing a song now, and I'll come back with our um, benediction in a minute. Amen. What a closing thought to worship God's holy name, even in the hour when we're called to go above what victors we are in Christ, to go into his presence, see his power and his glory, to know that all of our labor and suffering in this world matters to him and counts for eternity. Bless the Lord. Let's close with uh, praise the Lord together. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Father, for being with your people. Give us power to live for your name and protect your people. We pray it in the name of your Son. Amen.